Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochulillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochulillo. And before we get started, I would like to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghost of Me, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to the show, just go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. I almost forgot who I was when I introduced myself. <laughs> and now, without much further ado, our guest for today is Peter Panagor, and he apparently froze to death while hanging off the side of a mountain. Sounds pretty wild. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Gary, for having me. And yes, that's what happened. So how does one find themselves in a situation where they're freezing to death, hanging off the side of a mountain? Well, I, I suppose it all stems from the youthful idea of immortality uh, and, the, and the facing of, if there's a mountain there, I shall climb it sort of <laughs> perspective. And But really what happened was I was a, I was a 21-year-old kid no offense to 21 year olds out there but i i went on a 10-day backcountry trip and eight of those days was a spring break i was a student at montana state university on exchange in bozeman montana from massachusetts and i didn't want to go back to boston for spring break and i decided to do something wilderness and outdoorsy because i was a wilderness outdoorsy guy National Ski Patrol, Boy Scout till I was 18, which is unusual, winter camper, uh, mountain climber, backpacker, hiked in all the New England mountain ranges, which is where I live, of course, near Boston. And uh, when I went to Montana, I did a lot of backpacking earlier in the year, Glacier, uh, Yellowstone, Absarokis, a bunch of mountains. I spent a lot of my time in the mountains. That's just to let your audience know that I was not a, a neophyte. And so, uh, just just foolish, okay? Not a neophyte, <laughs> but just foolish. And so, my I, I went to the outdoor club, and I was looking for a partner to go do something adventurous. And I found this guy, he had this poster up, and it said, I'm doing 10 days in British Columbia and Alberta during spring break, snow caving on, on cross-country skis, and then a one-day ice climb on this world-famous ice climb called Lower Weeping Wall. And the, we met and we decided we had complementary skills. He was a certified lead climber on ice and rock. So, and I, I, I've done quite a bit of rock climbing, but I'd never been ice climbing. And I had most of my gear for backcountry living. So I had to come up with a deep, a deep freeze sleeping bag, which I didn't have, and some other uh, snow caving gear. But I also had to come up with all the ice climbing gear. I didn't own any ropes or carabiners or harnesses or any of that kind of stuff. And so I got what I could from the outdoor club, and I, I got one ice axe, and this is the foolishness, okay? 
We'll get that out of the way. I, I got one ice axe, and you need two ice axes to do an <laughs> ice climb, right? But I couldn't find another ice axe. And as a college student, I didn't want to go spend 150 bucks and buy one. So I came up with an ice hammer. And a hammer is much, much shorter. An axe is much, much longer. And you can it works the same way. You put the pick of the – it's like a – like the the nose of the beak of a bird mm-hmm. you whack that beak of the bird in the ice you tip it in at the bottom there's an ice pick and and because of the the hypotenuse it's all physics there's a you can it's very strong you can hold your whole weight on this thing and it has a hole in it with a nylon webbing with a bead on it and you put your hand through the webbing and you slide the bead down you plant this thing in the ice and you can let go and hang on there and rest and that's the key thing here is that I could rest one arm, but not the other arm. So you can't rest with a hammer because that strap is not meant to hang on. The strap is at the very bottom of the hammer, hanging off the bottom, the tail end. And it's really to clip it on your carabiner or to put it on your wrist mm-hmm. so you don't drop it because you know you only have one of them on you. So, but you can climb with it. It still is strong. You could pick it into the ice and tip it in, and I could hold my whole weight on it. So Sim and I, my part, my climbing partner and I decided that, yeah, we were young and strong and capable and I could do this. So we get to the climb and we were the last team in sometime after sunup. And there was, you know, I don't know how many other teams, eight, nine, ten teams on the ice already climbing up ahead of us. And by the time we got on the ice, last ones up, we were slowed significantly in our climb because I could never rest both arms, which meant that I burned out my arms pretty fast. Hmm. Just got exhausted, and so I'd have to rest more and rest more and rest more. And I'd have to rest with the ice axe hanging without, with the hammer just kind of dangling by my side because um, the forearm, it's a very forearm kind of sport. And so I want to let people know that what I was dressed in. I was dressed in wool clothes with long underwear, polypropylene top, and a shell with a helmet. Ragwell Mittens, 1960 buckle ski boots that were very stiff. You need stiff boots to climb and uh, crampons. And you know, I was athlete. I'm athletic. I'm, I'm now 62. I'm less athletic than I was, but I was a mountain goat in my younger years. And so climbing up was a, was a pretty easy thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. But because I was slow, because I had to rest, by the time we reached the top of the climb, it was sunset. And we're, this is March. There's 10 feet of snow on the ground. And it, the temperature dropped about 30 degrees in an instant. We're about a, a, a day's drive from the Arctic Circle. We're, there's this very sparsely populated place where I should tell people where I am. We're in Banff Provincial Park, <clears throat> north of Banff, south of Jasper, uh, on a mountain called Cirrus Mountain, right on the Saskatchewan River on the Icefields Parkway. And the, the across from the mountain, uh, the, the parkway is right at the bottom, and across the street, right across the street, is the river and the parking lot for the climb. So it's a very close, you walk in, you walk out, it's, it's mm-hmm. easy. And as we sat on this ledge and the temperature dropped and the sun went down, the last teams um, were walking out. And we knew instantly, We actually we knew mm, two hours before we reached the top of the climb that we were in serious trouble because we knew how long it was going to take us to get up there, and we knew that it was going to be bad going down. And because we were dressed for the temperature of the day, and this is a day climb, so nobody brought gear up or stoves or you know 
tents or any of that kind of stuff. Just a day, a day climb. So we didn't even have any extra warm clothes with us. We just had on what we had on like everybody else. So immediately when the sun went down, our temperatures dropped instantaneously. It dropped 30 degrees. So, wow. and it was, it was warm enough that it was, the ice was a little soft. So maybe it was 32, maybe it was 27. I don't know. But the temperature went down to close to zero instantaneously. And we began to both, Tim and I, as we're sitting on this ledge and the rope is still hanging over the edge. We haven't even hauled up the rope yet. We begin to get shuddering, uh, shivers. So our whole bodies would begin to sh- begin to shake like in a cartoon, and our body, all our muscles were tensing and flexing I- instantly, like pump, 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 and our jaws were clattering. Our teeth, you know, the clatter of teeth. Yeah, I know what that sounds like now, and and what it feels like. And I couldn't. I I tried to talk, and I I bit my tongue because my I couldn't. So I had to like the shuddering, that 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 shivering eventually quieted down, so we could talk. But we realized that what was going on is that our bodies had become so cold so quickly that our bodies were trying to respond by generating heat. Hmm. That's what the shivers were all about. And so then we hauled, Tim hauled up the rope, and uh, because we were we 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 picked each other as climbing partners and backcountry uh, partners, not just because our skill sets were complementary. I was the I was the, the first aid guy because I was working at ski patrol at Bridger Bowl that year as a college student volunteer, and um, and. Tim had all his other skills, but but really one of the things that we trusted about each other, and we learned to believe in each other the previous week, was neither of us lost our heads in difficult situations. And we had encountered difficult situations during our snow caving. We crossed an avalanche field. I once was waxing my skis. I had to wax my skis, and I fell off into the snow, and I was like I was in quicksand. I, I couldn't I couldn't get out of the snow. I was like flailing. It was funny, okay? But <laughs> but it was also like, if I don't get out of the snow, I'm going to die here. Um, but neither of us lost our heads ever. So we're sitting at the top of the cliff. We're, we're both very frightened. And we're, we both know the seriousness of the situation that we're in. But we both stay calm throughout the entire night. We, we trust each other. And so we discussed, Tim hauls up the rope. It becomes this 300-foot knot. And I have to take off my gloves in order to untangle this knot in the dark, not pure dark. There's a bazillion stars in the sky of every color. The most the most star-filled skies I've ever seen in my life. And and there's so much starlight that I could see, black and white. Mm-hmm. And so I could see to untangle the rope, but I started getting frostbite on my hands because I had to take my mittens off because I had to feel the line in order to untangle the rope. And I still have all my digits, but uh, I have damage. I'm I'm damaged on every extremity. I have da- I have I have frostbite damage that never lets me forget what happened to me and uh so we discuss the shiverings quiets down and we discuss spending the night right there on the cliff uh snuggled up against the rock face together in order to conserve our body heat together combine our body heat but we realized that we didn't have enough body heat and that we were surely going to die if we stayed where we were we might die if we fought our way off the mountain but we were definitely going to die if we stayed where we were so we got the rope up and we decided that we had to move and we roped together, Tim led, and we traversed across this ledge. And mind you, there were only five or 600 feet up and there's a 10,000 foot mountain above us. Okay, so we're, we're not that far up, but 
we're far enough up that you fall, you die. We're far enough up that you can't just climb down. And the thing, the thing about ice climbing is you can't really like you can't really reverse direction. You know, when we realized that what kind of trouble we were in, we couldn't just turn around and go back down again. You can't really do that. You have to get up and rappel down properly. It's just the way the sport works. And it's not because it's a rule. It's just the way, you know, it's the way the thing works. And so we traversed across this ledge and we came to the first rappel. And by this point, we we were both young bucks and neither of us had very much body fat on us whatsoever. And already as we moved, because we had run out of food and we were shivering, our bodies started to consume what little fat that we had. And it, it sounds kind of um, quick for that to happen, but we realized that in every time, every step we took, our energy meters went down. Every word we spoke, our energy meters went down because we were we were out of fuel and we didn't have any water. And so the body began to take care of itself. But also freezing started setting in. And one of the side effects of, of hypothermia is you get confused and you make poor decisions because right. your brain's... And so we got to this first repel <clears throat> and there was a, a, a like a spruce or a pine or something uh, this, that you're supposed to pick a piece of nylon webbing, which is a flat nylon tube tied in a square knot, and you make this loop with it. And it's strong enough. This material is strong enough. If, if I hooked it on the back of your car on a trailer hitch and I went on my car, I could haul, you know, if I had a truck, I could haul your car out of whatever. And uh, so you take this, this webbing and you wrap it around the tree and you put the rope through that and you throw the rope down. And the reason is, is because the rope is wet, and the tree is rough, it's cold out, and the tree can freeze the rope to the tree. But we were not in our right minds. And we decided that as college students, you know, poor college students, we didn't want to lose money by wasting a piece of webbing. Because when you pull the rope through, you lose the webbing. So instead, we wrapped the tree, the rope around the tree, and we descended. And it's a rappel. You're bouncing off the mountain until the, lot of, the lower part where there's an overhang and you free fall. You slide down the rope to the next area of... Uh, uh, the pad, I guess you could call it. So we get down to this pad. There's about four feet of snow on the ground. And and by this point, we've lost a, a lot of our coordination because that also happens too. You can't hold things. You can't walk well. Your we're, Our lips were freezing, so we weren't able to speak clearly. Our jaws were freezing. Everything was becoming more difficult. And Tim and I pulled on the rope to get it free, and it just was frozen to the tree. And so then we spend, I don't know, maybe two hours trying to get the rope free. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave out some of the stuff that happened, but not the essentials. Uh, Tim tried to ascend back up the rope in order to free the rope. Because our situation was, I can't, I, we were in a very desperate situation. It, I, I tell this story sometimes with humor, sometimes with tears, but it's always... And until I went back in 2016 to face my post-traumatic stress disorder that I got that night, um, I, I couldn't tell this story without crying. So this, so me not crying, because mm -hmm. it always brought back this tremendous fear that I had. Um, and, and now, since 2016, I, I, I had a healing. I had a healing when I was there. And so, and I, and I, and I thank the people <clears throat> who helped me have that healing. So anyway... 
Tim got about 20 feet up the rope, and I had taken the line and wrapped it around my waist and laid down in the snow to make it as tight as possible. He got about 20 feet up, and the rope and the rope came free, and he kind of fell down on me. I rolled out of the way, and off we went to the next rappel. We go down the next rappel, and it's we're off the ro- off the ice now. We're in rock, so it's it's in in the dark sort of because it's and the moon had come up, and the moon was casting a shadow into this place where we were rappelling. So it was kind of in the dark, and we get down to the bottom of this rappel and you go around a ledge. There's a ledge and it's a square. I'm trying to make a square so you can see. Mm-hmm. There's a ledge and I go around this, the corner of this ledge and Tim goes first. He, he descended before I did. And, and there's a ledge. It's kind of like the size of a kitchen table. And there's iron pins and rings and carabiners and a pair of uh, harness uh, of strapping with carabiners. So you could clip yourself in. So you clip yourself into the mountain. So it's the first time all night that we're actually in a physically safe position. We will not fall no matter what happens. So we're clipped into the mountain and uh, we're only like 100 and 150 feet up, 100, 150 feet. And I untie the line from my, um, pardon me, I tie the line to my harness. I take the other end of the line. I toss it out to the side around this corner into the dark. And I, I yank on the line to you know pull it down. And it jams like on the first pull. I got maybe four inches. Whoop! It's stuck. And you know how you can snap a line to get it mm-hmm. lifted. Well, because it was an angle, you can't oh, snap yeah. a line around an angle. So I snapped the line, and it stops right at the angle. And and I can't go out. I can't go over there because I have no safety. I have no coordination. My feet are. When you buy a block of ice at the at the convenience store in the summertime, my feet are like blocks of ice. They, I can't I, my, I can't feel them. I still can't feel my big toe on my right foot, and the I can't even bend my toes. So now we know that we're in really serious trouble because I can't get the rope free and we can't descend. And so I spend a lot of time trying to get this rope free, and Tim can't help because we're afraid to do several things afraid to take off my mittens because i could i lose my fingers i i i I could drop my mittens i could if if i untie the rope and i'm not i have my hands are frozen and i have no coordination and i'm not thinking straight i could drop the rope and then we would have i could drop my end and it would just kind of swing around to the side and follow gravity and then we'd have no rope at all and we weren't even sure that tim could reach the rope so we decided that it was better for me to just try to pull on it myself. And and as the night progressed, I should say, as the morning progressed, because now it's getting towards dawn. I don't know how many hours ahead, maybe two hours ahead of dawn, something like that. Getting on towards dawn, and um, an incredibly beautiful place. And I get hot, and I know, because I'm ski patrol, I know you're not supposed to take your clothes off when you're freezing to death. It's counterintuitive because mm-hmm. uh, you feel like you're hot, but you're not. And that's what happened to me. So I unzipped my coat. Tim scolded me for doing that, but I was like, uh, yeah, I'm doing it anyway. And um, I'm hot. And and that that accelerated my decline. And But it also brought this – this. it was like a, 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 a combination psychological, emotional, and intellectual recognition that I was dying where I stood. The, the game was over. I couldn't get the rope free. I know that I've only got an, one more stage left in hypothermia, which is falling asleep. And um, that's it. I'm done. And so 
all of this fight that I'd had all night long, this drive for survivability, which was, I, I'd sometimes describe it as mammalian or reptilian. It goes way, it went way down deep into like my original brain, the, the, the part of me that is the oldest part of, of humanity that was just survive. And that just stopped. That just gave up. And this peace came over me. And I started thinking about my family. And I started thinking about God. And I realized that this was it. I wasn't getting out of this. And then I began to fall asleep. And I would fall asleep. And I'd collapse on the ledge. And then I was held in by the harness uh, and the strap. And I'd pull myself back up. And I'd yank on the rope. And I did this a bunch of times. I don't know how many times. Could have been two. Could have been five. I don't know. And this last time I stood up, as I stood up, I had the, it turns out there was one more step in, in hypothermia that I really didn't know. And that was this uh, tunnel vision. So you, it was like I was on a spotlight on a stage and at the periphery of my vision suddenly became black and a big circle. And then that circle just closed in. It just, I, I just became this tunnel right in front of me, just like that. And then it went black. And every time I fell asleep, I lost consciousness. I'd fall asleep. I was unconscious in sleep. I'd smack onto the rock, and that would add a helmet on. But the shock would wake me up, and I'd continue on yanking on the rope, pulling on this. But this time, this thing went down to black, and I expected I, – I, I was befuddled at first because i'd never seen this tunnel thing before but i still expected to lose consciousness but i didn't i didn't well, this thing went to black and i didn't lose consciousness i was awake and i was and i thought to myself i must i must have fallen i must be lying down i don't feel like i'm lying down but and why am i not asleep and i i felt like i was still somehow standing but i couldn't be and the then the darkness sort of expanded and this expansion of darkness and everything i say from this point forward is all in metaphor because it's all it's full of paradox it's full of um well it's full of paradox and it's full of things that can't be said by human tongue uh, so i gave it language and i and i and i use metaphor it but so this darkness became expansive instead of being right in front of me like this it, be, it bloomed into this infinity where I could see sort of it, it bubbled, ballooned way far out. Uh, at, at, like if you're looking at, at the night sky and you can see, it's hard to tell from Earth, but the furthest star that your human eye can see, it was further than that. It was so far out and it was completely black, but way far in this distance, a, like a pinprick of light, like some, like a, someone took a, black sheet of construction paper and and poked a hole in it and now i have this light i can see this light and this light and i don't know what's going on i'm 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 just what is going on and this light rushed at me faster than the speed of light for the distance it came rushing toward me and expanded in size to fill my vision as it came closer to me, as it got right close to me in filling my vision, it telepathically communicated to me in a download of information, I am taking you with me. And I was like, no, you're not. And I, I, I grabbed all the willpower that I had left and I shoved it up like a wall and it just went through it like it was nothing. Just plucked me right out.
And I, I felt like I was, I felt like I used the word plucked because I felt like it grabbed me and yanked me and, and pulled me inside itself. So now I'm inside of this entity and this entity is, and I got to take a drink of water. This entity is intellect. It's, it's all powerful intellect. It's so intelligent that it, it dwarfs me completely. It, it super intelligence, super powerful. I had no more agency. I had no will to make any choices. I couldn't decide to go or stay. I was, I was along for the ride. And instantaneously, we left my body. And it carried me up this tunnel, you could say, because there was an expansive darkness around us too. But we were in this thing as well. And it was, the, I was comforted. I was in a state of comfort and in a state of uh, uh, familiarity and in a state of understanding that I was something this, I had no control over this and I had to go along for the ride and that's just the way it was and I was okay with that. And the this intellect was communicating all of these um, truths to me about what I just said. You have no agency. You have to go along with this. Um, I am the powerful intellect. I am the, the divine being. And you're coming with me. And I just relaxed and went. And then I felt like I popped into a, a larger space. And, I, in, and it's very difficult. Everything I talk about is very difficult because it's non-sequential. It's uh, non-chronological. It's there's no time, there's no space, there's no matter, there's no energy, there's nothing, there's nothing familiar at all, uh, nothing familiar at all. It's just this illuminated darkness, which is like an ocean extending in every direction. And it, it, and Gary, I should say a stop. And so I'm just rattling on here. Is that cool? No, keep going, man. Keep going. Okay, okay. So I I I I'm in this place of non-being. I'm in a I'm in a place of nothing. If this is if this is something, and this is something, then I was in a place where there were no things at all, uh, no no electrons, no molecules, nothing. And I was an orb of consciousness. I was like this energy field of myself. When I was I I, I was the totality of my. My myself was my seeing, was my thinking, was my hearing. There was no division. Like when you touch a glass, you feel it with your finger. There was no finger. The touching was the thinking and the understanding. It was, but there were no glasses there either. I, I, I was a sensory being of intellect, of energy, and of consciousness. And I was, ah, this, this is me. This has always been me. How did I... How did I, why did I think that other life was my life? That was never my life. This is my life. This is what I am. And I was in this, I could see in every direction all at once, like I had 10,000 eyes or I was a single eyeball. And, uh, but there was nothing to see except for I could see very deeply. Uh, I could see well enough with a new understanding that infinity lay beyond my sight but I could see further than I could ever see before. And then all these things happened at once and a portal opened in front of me, you know, the, the proverbial pearly gates. Okay. And, and, and there's this flow of energy. that's like a river coming 
down from the top of this this portal, this gigantic opening, and it's transparent because I can see through it, and there's this tunnel that arcs way far away into the infinity, and I know that I'm meant to go into this tunnel, and I just know this, and and the this fluid, this pearly fluid, this liquid light was was also translucent so i could see its depth and thickness but it was also solid i could see its surface all these three things at once transparent translucent and, and solid and there was no contradiction in those things and i felt this compulsion no this desire this want to touch this thing and so i reached out with my field my mind myself and i touched the surface of this thing and it was it was uh you know all life with a capital A and a capital L. It was it was the creator. It was the, the the being of intellect, knowledge, understanding, beauty, joy, fullness, creation, creator. Uh, and it just flowed inside of me and infilled me with this expansion of itself, of light and love and beauty. And 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 it called my name, but it wasn't Peter. It was calling the 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 essence of the soul. It was calling my created, the, the thing that I am actually, the, in the words without language that created me. It, the calling of my name was like this eternal calling of me into my being. And I could see so much. I could see the origin of myself like a single photon um, it, made of one like light of all of these gazillions of photons that was the divine self itself that was immensely larger than anything. I couldn't see the top of it or the bottom of it, and I could see that it was made of the same substance as I was, this teeny tiny limited single photon, but the mass of this this being was enormous, infinitely enormous. So I could see that I was the same as, and yet I was limited from because I had some sort of existence outside of it even though i was a part of it and i then could see was shown the uh, the my soul my consciousness over eons of time from the moment of my creation i could see the long everlasting length of my soul and i was and i am an everlasting being and i could see lives i had lived or was living because I'm in timelessness and I can't see now whether they were past or present and and whether they were in the earth or in other worlds or other universe. I have no idea. I can't see into them now. I, I could see into them then, but I can't see them now. It's like I've got a block for that. And and there weren't there were many, but there I don't know how many there were, but none of them. None of them took up uh, but a micron-thin layer of my soul's existence. And in between those micron-thin layers were miles of self. And so, so I, I understood Im immediately and deeply that not, not a single one of my incarnations was me. That I am, I am always this consciousness. I am always this soul. I am always this limited uh, light from light. Um, that is smaller than the infinity itself, but larger than I am as a person, much larger. And so the voice, now it's speaking to me this whole time, but it's not speaking in language, and it's completely present to me. It's like right next to my, my energetic 
soul consciousness, Atman, whatever you want to call it, self. But I can't see it. It is everything that there is. It is everything inside of me. It is me and it is everything around me. And yet I somehow have this the separation from it simultaneously and it's speaking inside of me it's calling my name it's saying i know you i created you i am creator you have always been mine i have always known you there is nothing about you that is unknown to me and i went then through uh all, all i went into a hell of all of the pain that i gave away in my earthly life as Peter, to everyone that I had given it to. I entered into each other person in a chronological sequence. My life review was to go into those people repetitively because, you know, it's my sisters, my brother, my mother, my father, my grandfather, my best friend, anybody who is special in my life, who I hurt in my life with intention, I experienced from their point of view the pain that I gave them. And, and the pain that I gave them I experienced from their point of view, I simultaneously experienced it from the the point of view of the person that I was when I did the action or said the words that caused the pain. And the pain was like 10,000 times greater each single time than I, I had ever imagined. It was astonishing to know that the little bit of pain I thought I gave my sister turned out to be enormous amount of pain. And the weirdest part of it was is that it did not accrue to her. It accrued to me. So all the pain that I gave away in life, I actually gave it to me. It was, I had it. And, um, and I went through this situation where not only did I experience their pain uh, and, and see all of my justifications, I was judging myself through the whole thing. That was, I was not judged by the divine. I judged myself. But I judged myself in comparison to infinite love. That all of my behaviors that were not loving, were not kind, were a causation of pain, were caused me pain as I experienced their pain. But a, a lot of the pain that I was experiencing in the judging of myself was in comparison to the beauty of the love that was infilling me and surrounding me, that kept saying to me, I love you, I made you. I forgive you. Even as I went through this, I was getting this message of, I love you. I love you. I love you. I know you. You're my creature. You belong to me. I love you. I made you. And I, and I also saw all of humanity, like an amorphous mass of humanity, and, and could see that there was no sin greater than any other sin because everything is limited in comparison to unlimitedness. So there, there's this great egalitarian similarity between all of the pain that we cause each other in comparison to the infinity of love. And my comparison, comparison point wasn't person to person. It was uh, soul consciousness to divine creator. And I measured myself as feeble and flawed and saw that it was not my fault that I was feeble and flawed because I didn't make me. I didn't make the universe. I was a made thing. And as a made thing, a created thing, I didn't participate in the decision-making process to make the world the place where we hurt each other. And so therefore, it wasn't really my fault that I did these things, because that is the nature of humanity. Yes, I, I, I gave the pain, and I felt the pain I gave away, but I didn't make up the game. I didn't make up the rules. 
and 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 it, all of the love that had been given to me in my life and all of the love I had given away in my life that also came with me and it was like this glowing treasure inside of me that allowed me to accept and to hear the love and forgiveness that was being spoken inside of me and when i when i finally accepted the love inside of me the whole hell purgative thing ended and i now describe it as and i and i steal these words from catherine of genoa the a purgative fire of divine love it was divine love purging me of those things that were a burden to me that were, would prevent me from entering into the fullness of the next experience and the next thing that happened was as i turned to love this this expansion of beauty love joy understanding intellect knowledge bliss paradise healing wholeness adoration understanding of the, all of peace joy it it filled me so much i i no longer had a separate self from it i was this i was the beauty i was still less than the infinity infinity but i was also was the beauty itself and i felt like if if one more drop of this entity had entered into this expanded consciousness that i was that my consciousness would have shattered and i would have folded completely back into the divine self and would have no longer been a separate entity evermore and it stopped at this the, at this just below that level and i said to the divine is this am i dead and the divine says yes you're dead uh, welcome home come home it's time for you to come home and i this is all telepathic and i say but my but my parents are suffering cuz uh my sister had run away when i was a kid and had broken my mom and my dad in pretty hard ways and made the family life very difficult and i was in montana to get away that's what i was doing there in the first place uh, but i couldn't i thought you know i can't take another kid from my parents you know my you know, things are bad enough as they are if i die it's going to wreck them and and as soon as i said that inside myself god took me and swept me to the edge of heaven at the edge of the universe where the where the two intermesh where where heaven sort of hides itself inside the universe where it becomes hidden inside of all things and at this edge and and, and I could see clearly in that that I that the divine not only was all the person of the divine was the heaven itself it wasn't like god's in heaven on a throne and heaven's this opposite thing this other, there's no throne everything is the oneness of being including what i'm looking at and what i'm looking at is the universe as we know it and i see earth and that is also the divine and 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 i see earth like a hologram and inside the this hologram i can see all of all the people on earth 7 billion people very like i'm looking right at you gary i could see their lives i could see who is you know this is before podcasting but but i would see you in your room with your headphones on I would see, you know, who's ever in your house. I could see everybody all at once, and it wasn't like I was looking at you and then looking at you. I could just see everyone. Like everything came at once. And everybody was covered by a veil, and they couldn't see what I could see. And uh, the divine said to me in this voice that was enormously powerful, in the way that I love you now, I have always loved you, and I love everyone there in the same way. you are my particular 
particular beloved, that's what it feels like to you. But every one of those people, 7 billion people, they are my particular beloved as well. In the same way that I love you, I love them all. And you now know that because of my love, all is well, has been well, and will be well eternally for everyone. For you, you will be, your parents in particular, I could see their faces and their suffering. They'll be well too. And if you just wait here with me, they'll be here in a moment because their life on earth will end. And But I could see their life without me. I could see the sorrow of their life without me, having lost a kid, another kid. And I could see their life with me would be less suffering. And I said, well, do I have to stay? And the voice said, no, you don't have to stay, but I want you to stay at your time. And I said, well, I come back here to this infinity, to this divine love, to this beauty that's beyond compare. And the voice said, yes, you can come back here. And I said, well, then I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life and sent me back like that. And, and I was just flew off. And as I flew off, I seemed to have, uh, instead of just being this, this orb of consciousness, I seemed to slip back inside this form of Peter as well at the same sort of time. And I, I, I was sent toward the, all these entry points, a million entry points where I could pick the point of entry back into that life. And in the center of this big circle of entry points was like a, the laser beam of white light of the divine self in its most pure form. And I chose not to go into that, that entry point. I chose to go off to a side of it because I wanted some agency. I wanted to, I wanted to live some of my life in the way that I wanted to not just be, um, what I guess I could have been or anybody could have been. And the situation I was in, but I didn't choose that path. I chose another path. And, and as I saw all these paths, all these entry points, I could see all of the probabilities of choices that I would make inside of those paths, each individual one. And I entered a particular one and I went down like a funnel. It squished me down. By the time I got back to my body again, I was extremely small in comparison. And it was this painful, I felt like I was twisted back into my heart chakra, like and like ground right inside me and i was back in my body again only i didn't know what i was i was like i i I had i had my consciousness still existed but i had no understanding of my physical body i i suddenly entered back into pain and suffering i had had no suffering i'd forgotten about suffering i'd forgotten about the world i didn't remember or understand what it was to be incarnate and i was suddenly inside this thing that was painful and eventually my brain began to came back come back online and that's when i started feeling pain and i started to hear noise and the noise was tim screaming at me and i didn't understand this until as i stood up he finally he pulled me up and he was screaming at me don't die don't die don't die you were dead you were dead if you were going to die i was going to die and he was crying and 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 scared and 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 i i don't i must have looked at him with this blank expression because i didn't know what was going on i I, it took me a while to even understand his words he was talking a long time before i started understanding what he was saying uh, because my brain my ears weren't working nothing was really working and and eventually he got me to pull the rope and the rope came free and we descended first pull 
comes free. We descend. We we get into our tent. We self treat for hypothermia because I'm still ski patrol and how to do this. And uh, around um, sometime after sunup, we were warm enough to get in the car, fire up the engine, and sit with the heater. And so we brought our temperature back up slowly and carefully so that we um, didn't, you know, go into shock and kill ourselves that way. And that changed everything. I from I, from that moment on, I was not the same person. I still looked the same, still had the same voice, still kind of the same characteristics. But I I was I felt like I was I was living inside a thing that wasn't me. And most of me was still outside, looking down through, trying to figure out what was going on. And to me, and that was one of the most beautiful places in the world. But to me, it was all ugly in comparison to the beauty of the other side. This was just crude and flat and black and white and painful and um and i was pissed i was pissed because i felt like i was tricked you know you won't live yeah you can go back but you won't live your life well, I was like okay but i had no idea what that meant and so i part of the things that happened to me after i spent about i spent a long time uh angry i was angry at god and for for because because almost immediately I had this, I could, I could hear the name being called inside me. So the name being called on the other side, it's still echoing inside me. I can still hear it, and like with the ear of my soul. And I, it, it came with this demand, demand of me to be a messenger. And I was like, not doing that. <clears throat> Keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody. And uh, I... So I spent a lot of time, spent decades trying to, on my own as a near-death experiencer, not even knowing that's what I was, mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out what had happened to me. I changed the course of my life. Um, I, I went into a different profession, studied different things, and everything's different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there, and you know, I've been talking for a while, and you should talk. It's your show for crying out loud. Um, oh, that was awesome. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, like, like I had actually a similar experience, but it wasn't near death. Like, I had a epileptic seizure, and I was out for about a half hour. But I remember what it was like. I remember going in this tunnel, in this blackness. It felt like home. It was absolutely peaceful. There was no pain. Um. I didn't. I don't remember encountering any entities, but I do remember sort of being surrounded by some colors and sounds or something like that. Sort of, it was really undescribable, and there was no time, absolutely no sense of time at all. Nothing was linear, yep. and then you know, all of a sudden, I heard somebody calling my name, and I remember thinking, and this was like my actual thought: like, "Oh shit, I got to go back." <laughs> and, yeah. and, 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 and I entered, you know, my body hurt, you know, I, like, I opened my eyes and there was my wife yelling at me. She was going, come back to me, come back to me. And by then I was like already in the ambulance. So it was like already like 30 minutes later, which seemed like nothing, nothing. to me. And I was just like, whoa. And, um, and it changed me. It, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a different person than I was before, but my view on life is completely different. Mm 
And I also didn't want to come back. I was kind of glad. At first, I was like, oof, why did I come back here? This is horrible. <laughs> you know? But, but I know, you know, I, I, you know, I wanted to be with my wife and, you know, maybe, maybe How I still had some. How many years ago was that? Oh, uh, this wasn't that long ago. This was about three years ago. No, no not even. Um, well, maybe two years ago. And, um, because it was about maybe I, I wrestled with the experience. I thought I was crazy. I'll talk to people about it. They're like, what? Yeah, your, your brain was just flashing on and off and whatever. And I was like, no, man, this was, this was something real that happened to me. You don't understand, you know? And uh, one day I had got an idea just to, to start the podcast. You know, I wasn't doing anything creative, and I did. And one of the people I talked to that, um, I told the story to was Jim Willis, and he had a similar experience too. And then I was like, oh, wow, so I'm not the only one. Then I talked to Mary Helen Hensley, and she had a similar experience. I was like, hmm. And I talked to a whole bunch of other people, PMH. Like, I, I talked to like all these people about NDEs and out-of-body experiences and stuff. And, and, and you know, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. And, and one of the things that I often kind of want to do is to be able to go back there and be able to come back at will. Right. Well, you are going to go back there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so has your wife noticed any changes in you? Has she commented? No. I wonder, you know, because I finally asked my parents 20 years out, 20, maybe even 30 years out. It's like, so you remember that summer and I came back from Montana, did was I different? And they're like, yeah, you know, actually you were different. And you were not that you weren't before Pete. My dad says, not that you were before Pete, but you were more, you were kinder and more compassionate. And I wonder if your wife has noticed some subtle changes in you that she hasn't mentioned since uh, then. I don't know. I, it, you know, it, it, if, it was, if it was something, a positive change, she probably wouldn't tell me anyway, because I would probably run with it. <laughs> so she's wise to the behavior. <laughs> she knows me too. That 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 part will never hasn't changed. Yeah. That's that. Well, I my character is still the same character I was before, mm -hmm. and I'm still sort of irreverent and and I love humor and um, and playing around, and that still remained the same. But you saw what you described to me, so. Sounds like a mystical experience. So near-death experience is a type of mystical experience. Oh, absolutely. It's not the only kind. It, it's just one of the kinds. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, what you just described, of course, is, you know, it's a mystical experience. You're, there was an out-of-body experience. You you left your body and you touched into the divine, or the divine came into you. You can have a mystical experience that enters into you as well. Even mm -hmm. if you didn't leave your body, it can still come inside you yeah. and, and occupy you. Yeah, I, I think I was definitely out. I was I was out somewhere like. in the universe, and uh, and it felt like home. It felt it really, like really, really good. You know, it's home. Um, That's why it is. I, I'll say like the biggest change for me now is like, I know I'm not my body. Yeah. So I'm not as afraid to take chances. <laughs> my body as much, um, and even like everyday pain, you know, it's like I can kind of just shake it off now. It's like well. All right, this isn't going to be forever anyway, you know? Yeah. So it, it really did shift your perspective. Yeah. Like like you, like, like prior to this, I had hurt my back and lost feeling in my leg. 
and it drove me nuts. And like sort of after experience, it's like, all right, well, I, I just got to deal with this leg for right. a little while. <laughs> it puts you right where you are. And it kind of eliminates like uh, expectation for me. It eliminates, okay, uh, do I have to endure this for five days or three days? No, I just have to endure it right now. Just yeah. right now. You know? Because that's where I am. And I won't be here forever. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important message because I think – I know for me the biggest thing is, and, and people think I'm crazy for this, but I don't really feel fear anymore. Uh, I, I would say if there was a really big change, I don't really feel afraid of anything. I feel like there's just nothing in this world to be afraid of. Don't worry about it. Just just do what you got to do. Enjoy it as much as you possibly can. Make it as good place as you possibly can. And just you know, let go of that fear. It's just an that's illusion. A, that's the same with me. And I, I, you know, I'll get a rush of like if someone cuts me off and almost hits my car, my my biology will send a pulse of mm-hmm. uh, adrenaline. But that's different than not being afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of dying. Uh, you know, death is my friend. And I, kookiness, I kept it a secret. You people don't want to talk about this, but because they don't want to admit. To themselves that they might have had a similar experience or or they've never had the experience and they can't understand it and and so they kind of repress those of us who've had the experiences mm. and they shut us up by by threatening us with, uh, socially you know, ostracized you know you get ostracized oh here's there's the kook over there you know what he told me once um <laughs> you know so you keep your mouth shut but here's the thing i think we're i think we're at least, i don't know we're not the majority but there's a lot of us Oh, yeah. And the more we talk about it, the more the safer it becomes for us to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I know it's different than like my experience because in my, in my youth, you know, I mean, I I did all the drugs that were out there, LSD and angel dust. and Didn't, didn't do that, but oh, I did do that once <clears> accidentally. <throat> it's good stuff. I was on some weed that I got somewhere. Yeah, that's what happened to me, too. I bought like a, a freaking half ounce of that shit. <laughs> Kept me tripping for a whole summer. I bet. <laughs> and uh, but I, I did all that stuff, and what I experienced through this was completely different. You yeah. know, like that other stuff, the hallucinogenics. Yeah, it made me realize that I can shift reality. That 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 reality isn't necessarily what it appears to be. That that reality can change like that. But the experience that I had with my seizure made me realize like. There's not even really a reality's not even there. It's just, there's just this peace. And that's, it was was different. But the main thing was like that that peacefulness, that feeling of being home. Same thing here, too. Um, I think that the psychedelics can give a person a mystical experience that Mm -hmm. shows them the end of duality and uh, the the start of the oneness of being the, that you know John Hopkins University is studying that for the last ten years they did yeah. a clergy study, right? So they've they've got evidence that of what the the big fear in the nineteen seventies a tune in turn on, turn on tune in no tune in turn on and drop out right and so so the youth of America were having a a, a coming of age that involved a new understanding of reality and that was frightening to a lot of people in power. 
so LSD became illegal. But the but so many young people had an experience like you just described. I had one mm-hmm. in high school, and um, for the same similar reason. And once you have that experience, you you change. I became a, a my spirituality. I had already been a spiritual person as a as a child, kind of a natural born mystic. But once I uh, had this trip to where I, I saw God in in uh, in the hill that I was skiing on. God, I was skiing at the time, and uh, which is that is a whole other story. Why that happened? Okay, it was it was not a good choice, <laughs> but but that's what happened. And so, but from that moment on, I became intensive about my mystical life. I came. I became intensive about my meditation life. Mm-hmm. So then, 1977, after that that psychedelic experience, I dove into meditation. I still practice every day. I've mm-hmm. been practicing for 40 years because, because the mind is the one thing that's in the way of the divine inside us. It, the, we are in our, oh, there's a mosquito. Um, I don't suffer mosquitoes and I, I let, the, I don't let them stay in my studio. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. If you're, um, so that's on to its next incarnation. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, once, once, once I had this mystical experience on on the psychedelic, I I realized that I could learn to control my mind and empty myself and find the stillness inside myself and allow space to, to develop or to create a capacity for the divine presence in me, mm-hmm. and and that it works. It does work, and I don't, I mean it sounds kind of like a conspiracy, but I think probably the the biggest threat to, to governments and religions and people in power is the real that, that of, of people having these type of realizations because that's true freedom. Yeah, well, mysticism has always been subversive. So every every major every major religion in the world, all religions in the world, as far as I can tell, uh, except for maybe cults of personality, uh, real religions in the world, they all have mystics in them, mm-hmm. and there's a literature. Going back centuries, since writing began, there's been mystics writing books about mysticism, Muslims and Jews and Jans and Zoroastrians, every, everybody, everybody. And um, But mystics start most religions that I can think of, but mysticism abhors institutionalization. Yeah. They abhors institutions and, and because it controls it. And so once power structures begin, dogma and doctrine and um, what you can do and what you can't do. Mystics then become dangerous because we don't believe any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, at least, at least I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll tell you truly that lots of mystics they follow the rules of. Like I know a bunch of of Trappist monks uh, who follow the Trappist lifestyle mm-hmm. and the Christian language, and but but inside their the center of their souls there is no doctrine. There's only divine love. And when you enter into the presence of divine love and divine light, there's no room for anything but itself. And itself is not a set of uh, religion rules or dogma or do this or don't do that. It is just love itself. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, all the rules go away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, even since I was young, too, I, I've always been sort of like an old school anarchist, you know, like I just. I've always kind of believed, like, well, let's just do away with all this stuff and, and see what happens. Let the human drama unfold. And people, like, a lot of people, are like, oh, that's, like, really cruel, you know? No, like, well, not really. And, you know, and, and it's because that's just, like, 
it's it's small beans compared to everything else that exists you know oh in terms of the universe yeah 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 it's just gonna it would just play out faster probably well human beings are just tribal animals mm-hmm that's what we are and um, we've been that way since for 300,000 years and you know religion serves a purpose okay I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give a plug for religion too even though it's cruel and repressive and oppressive uh, and destructive and warlike it also served a purpose um, to create community and to create cohesiveness and to create uh, so so that people wouldn't be just going into their neighbor's house and killing them for their stereo uh, or, or, or to, you know, uh, it created a set of rules so that humanity could be somehow civilized, but it came with a downside too. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was, I, I, I was thinking, what was the name of that book with, uh, uh, Lord of the flies that, uh, you know, that I think that's, I think that's humanity um, yeah. without the veneer of civility. And, and I think civility is a veneer. And civilization is a veneer. Mm-hmm. Um, if 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 great cataclysm occurs on Earth, you bet it's like going to be tribe against tribe again, mm-hmm. um, or or me against you, or whatever it is. You know, survival. That's this drive that um, demands that I survive, and my and my prodigy survives, even if I have to stop yours. It's a weird being mortal. Is this weird combination of spirituality for me this knowing that i'm not from here and that i live inside my body and still my body has its own will i mean it's still got to eat and sleep and you know do all these things that i don't really care about but i have to do them (laughs) yeah you know or sometimes i wonder if that tribal primitive type of thing could have the opposite effect of making people all of a sudden become more equal to each other, you know? Um, like, all of a sudden, you know, I, I could, um, you know, I don't know, punch, um, like, Bezos in the face or something, you know? Like, all of a sudden, me and him are on the same level, same playing field now. Yeah, uh, provided he didn't have better weaponry than you. <laughs> um, and and so I I I, I kind of think that the the near death experience is a is a new phenomenon in the history of humanity, mm-hmm. and that because of cardiac care, this mosquito is still hunting me, um, <laughs> and it will or it's a, or it's his buddy. I don't He's really thirsty. Know. Yeah, and uh, so. NDEs uh, started becoming more prolific as a result of cardiac care mm-hmm. that came online in the 1960s when medical science started raising the dead. And now there's tens of millions of us in the United States alone, let alone all over the world, um, people who've been resuscitated, who've had the similar experience that you had. And um, and I actually got him. Um, I did. I caught him. And uh, But the so now... We've come back, there's so many of us that have come back from the dead with the message of love, and we're the previously atheists or Jews or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists, doesn't really matter, China, you know, doesn't really matter who you are, you go to the other side, you know you are not your body, you know you are a consciousness. And so now, socially, for the first time in the history of the world, 
we're all talking about it. I'm on your podcast talking about near death experience. Mm -hmm. You're free enough to talk about your mystical experience. You couldn't do that five or 10 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. Right. Uh, they would have locked you up as a witch, witch, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then burned you. Um, and, and now because of this global phenomenon, uh, and this bubble of love that all these uh, all, uh, lots of my near-death experience friends who traveled deeply into the divine came back with a radiance about them so that their their presence is it's very visible to me and i'm very visible to them and it's not just what we see with our eyes is this extra sense that we have with each other and and when we gather together, say, at the International Association for Near-Death Studies Conference, where a lot of us get together, it's like this big, huge magnification of all of our light. And there's like a big force field bubble that sets down over this, this uh, where the conference center, wherever we're at. And it's, it's bigger than us. Mm -hmm. And so, so now we're all talking social media, documentaries, books, podcasts, and and. I think this is the evolution of humanity. I think that for the first time in the history of the world, we have an opportunity to, to understand cross-culturally and transreligiously, transnationally, that love really is, that there really are no tribes, that there re we really are one, you are me and I am you, and the spiritual level, the light. Whenever you see the light in a person, if you ever see the light in a baby's eyes or your wife's eyes or uh, you just feel the light the light of the divine sees the light of the divine the mm -hmm. light see itself and if we are able to as a human species tap into that maybe we, maybe we we can evolve to the place where where there won't be any anarchy right. we'll just be sisters and brothers uh, uh living together i know that sounds like a fantasy of utopia but I don't see any other hope for us. Right. We're pretty, you know? Really, I mean, that's, that's where we have to go if we want to survive, probably. I think so. <laughs> because we're pretty, we're shoulder to shoulder now. You know, we have filled the earth and subdued it. And, you know, in our subduing of it, we've caused a lot of problems. And, and now, you know, we have nowhere else to expand to at the moment. Should we need more, more territory? Unless, you know, as, as Canada melts, and the permafrost becomes exposed, mm -hmm. and you know there, there, there are those sorts of things. But that's social upheaval and, na and national borders changing and shifts of populations. And if that all thing, if all of that comes to fruition, but yeah. now that we filled the earth, I think our only hope is spirituality. I think it's it's to see the other person um, as me. You know this whole Namaste. Mm -hmm. You know Namaste. Yeah. The God in me, you know, bows to the God in you. The light inside of me sees the light inside of you. The the that even that we give that. It's good that we give it lip service. Yeah, um, it is. It's good that we do that. But when you have a mystical experience, which I think most of the fifty, I think fifty percent of or so of the population have at least have a visitation of the dead, oh, or yeah. um, or some <clears throat> circumstance like that. I think we're a big number. I think near-death yeah. experiences are a small number of a much larger number. Another thing that I find is kind of cool and open, has opened me up to is being with somebody when they're dying. Oh, yeah. You know? It, it, you tell. Yeah, it, it's just... Well, one, like like my father, he, like, he died kind of really slow. 
and we had to put a baby monitor in his room. And he was having full-on conversations with people that had already passed. You know, and you could tell, like, they were just, like, you know, trying to get that ego part of him just to let go. Yeah. Well, the, uh, this guy named Bruce Grayson, who's with the I- IANS, he's a scientist. He just came out with a book called After. And in it, he, he talks about uh, shared death experience. Shared death experiences where you get to participate a little bit in someone's dying process and either you see their soul leave when they die or you get to witness them talking to the deceased, mm-hmm. you know, to the to other people who have gone before them. Um, and uh, there's another mosquito in here. I'm going to have to close my door. That's crazy. They're going to be in here. I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to excuse myself for a second or I'm going to I'm going to, you know, fly away on the wings of mosquitoes. Give me half a sec. <laughs> All right. All right, that's all good. Cool. The door's right there. I had screen <laughs> over it, but it's it's a leaky screen. And anyway, so so uh, I've seen such things too, you know. And mm-hmm. when I was a pastor, going to hospitals, visiting the the dying, they would be talking to you know people that had passed. And in the old days, even twenty five years ago, the nurses and the doctors and every all the family members would say, "Oh, honey, he's not here." Honey, it's okay. I know I, it's okay. She's not really here. But now people are finally caught on that even if they don't understand that they, that he or she really is here, that you don't tell that to the the dying person. Yeah. You let them have this space because it turns out that there's a transition space mm-hmm. around dying where there's like a permeability that Grayson was. Grayson came out with some studies on this. That there's this. There's he did design. He showed this this reverse bell curve. And if, if dying is at the top of this reverse bell curve, the uh, on either side of it, about two weeks, there's like this permeability. As a person dies, the dead start coming to visit. And uh, and after that, it's it, within those couple of weeks is when most frequently the dead come to visit you. Uh, so there's this like couple of weeks, four weeks or so around the dying experience where um, the veil gets very thin. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting Experience it is something that I think we, our culture shies away from. You know, we kind of just want, we, nobody wants to be around people when they die because they're afraid of it or whatever. But, you know, my opinion is it's, it's just as important, if not more important, than being born. Oh, it is. It's being born in reverse direction. I saw mm-hmm. this meme the other day, and the meme was uh, there's a, a, a body on a bed and a family gathered around in their mourning. And the body has, the soul has left the body and it's being greeted by other loved ones. The soul is in joy with, with these other deceased body, uh, souls, but the people are mourning the dead body. And it says, the meme says, for those who live, it's grief, but we have to remember for those who die, it's joy. They mm-hmm. get to meet those. It's, a, it's another, it's a continuation on. It's not an end. It's a, it's the next journey. The door opens. You're off to the next thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you have a film coming out, don't you? Or, or is it already out? Um, I, I've got two things going on. One, I've, I'm in a documentary that uh, was on, might still be on Amazon Prime, but now is on YouTube and called Life to Afterlife Here and Back Too. But I've been working on a movie for my this book here that um, 
my international best audible best seller. Heaven <laughs> is beautiful. I, I I signed a contract with some pretty fantastic Hollywood producers who've got a very strong, long history of success, and we've been working on it for a year. Uh, I this is amounts to act two i have had to do, help work with them to create an act one for the movie and mm-hmm. an act three for the movie all true uh, but we've been working on that for a year and we finally have gotten to the place where we've got it we've got it massaged enough to uh finalize the the next draft so it won't be out for a year or two but it's and it's a heck of a lot of work but it's uh, been a fantastic experience. I can't believe I'm working with these people. We're uh, I had a we're finishing our first 18 months together, probably midsummer, and we're signing the next 18 month contract. We have a three three 18 month contract renewal contract. Wow! And by the and so it takes because it takes a long time to develop television. It takes a long time to develop um, movies. Mm-hmm. It just is that's just the way it is. So working on it, working hard on it. Is and, it a documentary uh, or is it like a? It's it, it's a feature film, and um, so who's playing well, you, Brad Pitt? I I, I no, it's got to be a young hot thing. Because <laughs> that's you know I like to think of myself as a young hot thing. I don't know of any young hot actors anymore. I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but but I'll tell you that they're out there, and they they they've been talking to they haven't been talking to I should say to be truthful, uh, they have people in mind. But they have not. We're not to that place yet. Um, so, what's gonna what'll happen is is that I'll finish this draft. It's, it'll be my fourth draft. I'll finish the, and each draft has been about ninety pages, and so it's a it, each draft takes four to six months mm-hmm. of writing, and so that's just the nature of writing. So I'll finish this draft. They'll uh, get a director. They'll get a producer. Uh, pardon me. They'll get a director. They'll get an actor, and they'll get the scriptwriter. And um, they'll, and then we're off to the races. Then it begins. Wow. And and this guy, I, I will tell you this: that this guy used to buy lots of film, lots of books, and only make one. Now he makes buys one book and makes one. Hmm. So I'm and and oh, and one of my producers, she's a near death experiencer. I did really? a podcast. Yeah, I did this podcast. Um, and the next day, I get this phone call. I heard you on the podcast last night. We got to talk and. So as we're talking, she tells me her story, which is super similar to mine. Uh, she didn't die ice climbing, but we went to a very similar place and had a very similar experience. And so I'm Googling her. I'm vetting her as I'm talking to her. And I'm like, oh, my God, she's a Hollywood producer. Look at that. Look at this. <laughs> and, um, and so then we start talking for a year. We just became buddies. And uh, at the end of this year, um, she finally she said to me, so who's doing your movie? I said, I don't know you it's just like yeah let's get my ex on the phone right now and because uh, they still they still make movies together uh-huh. and, um, so you know within one thing led to the next and suddenly i'm on the phone with this other guy who's you know this well-known producer and um i'm like okay we're I, now we're doing and now i'm doing this thing and and i got my literary agent involved and their film agent involved and contractor signed and and I've been working on it ever since. And it's been this it's been an education for me. I've, I've earned a living as a as a working writer my whole life. So I've been a clergy person. Right. I was mm. a, a minister for 20 years, 18 years and a denomination. And um, and then I was in TV. I had a spot on TV here up in up in New England. On a, I had a daily spot for 15 years where I wrote for 
and was on the morning news, but it wasn't news, it was daily devotions. And um, I, so I've been, I've been writing my whole life, and now I'm writing in a new way. So they're giving me a tutorial uh, I, on how to write in a new style. It's been this incredible education for me. It's been, that's one of the better parts of it. I mean, the whole thing's great, but learning to write in a new, to have, to write with, with action driven by emotion rather than action driven by narrative, Mm -hmm. which is a very different thing. And uh, it's been cool for me. It's been like a fun for me, but great. (laughs) That's actually like the type of reading that I enjoy are writers who, don't na- put narrative in her books where the, all, the entire book is nothing but conversation or action and yeah. there's no narrative at all. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what we're, we're working in. And, uh, and whether I master it or not is another question, but it's been, a, and they're experts. They're, they're experts in the style. And mm-hmm. so I'm not, I'm not doing the screenplay. I'm doing the, the, the material for the screenplay. And, it's been this fascinating sort of process. We've met, I don't know, a dozen times in the last year. And I've, I've been meeting with the, one of the producers more regularly, but together maybe a dozen times. And about two weeks ago, maybe even a week ago, two weeks ago, we finally nailed the ending. Like, we know how the movie's going to end. And, and it's going to be uh, a bit of a cliffhanger. And that's, and I, but by this point, I won't be on the cliff. I'll be, I'll be at Divinity School. And, uh, but, but there are things that happen after my near death experience that my near death experience caused that are, um, well, they're, I, as a result, I've lived this extraordinary life. Uh, that's actually going to be like my next question. After your near death experience, um, one of the things that I've heard people say is they come afterwards, they'll have, more psychic abilities or an ability to heal. Have you had any of those side effects? I have definitely had those side effects. And um, the, the psychic ability is, I, I have decided, I mean, I, 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 after I spent three years in graduate school studying mysticism, and, I'm, and I learned about the history of mysticism from, from the masters. And, um, and I made decisions about my psychic abilities. And I decided that I would not pursue them. I would pursue the oneness of being and let whatever comes to me come to me. And so I, instead of trying to channel some, some being or uh, uh, the deceased, which lots of people do and it's real, mm-hmm. um, I, I chose to aim my heart at the oneness of being and try to get back to the place as closely as I could to where I had been. And try to become, as Francis of Assisi talks about, a channel of peace. I want to be a channel of of soul healing. I my my goal in my in my in my ministry is to help my people find the divine inside them and find out that they're not who they think they were, and that the divine lives inside them and it's accessible to them, and they can live in this state of connectivity, which I do. I live in this mm-hmm. state of connectivity all the time. And uh, so that's kind of how I, I, I manage my psychic powers. But I, I read people. I see into people. I, 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 like, I see soul. I see light in people. I see darkness in people. I see truth in people. Um, you can always tell, I can always tell in one near, I, someone who's a near-death experiencer, one of the side effects. I always kind of like, oh, you're a near-death experiencer. Listen to him for a minute. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're one of us. <laughs> but in terms of healing, um, 
I had an experience once after this was 80. I died in 81. This was 85, probably 85, fall of my third year at, at Divinity School. Um, and uh, I was coming back in, in a car on a highway and witnessed a car wreck. And because I was ski patrol, like first responder. Um, so I get out of my, I get out, the guy who's driving me, I get out of the car and I go over and the car's upside down on a, on a guardrail. And there are two people, there's a crowd of softball players, but there's two people who had been in the, in the, in the car. The, the young guy, uh, was pacing back and forth and extro very angry, screaming and yelling and yelling at himself and angry at himself. But, but also could, it was very obvious to me. He had a lot of rage inside him anyway. He's just a rageful person. Mm -hmm. And on the ground was his dad and his dad was unconscious. And, um, and so I went over to his dad and I, 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 I introduced myself. I did all the protocol and anybody here, a doctor or a nurse, I'd like to take over the scene, whatever. So I'm in charge of the scene now. And I go over to him and I palpate him. He's unconscious. His eyes are unreactive to light and which like maybe head injury, I think. And, um, I palpate him. I don't feel anything grossly broken because he, he can't tell me, oh, that hurts because he's unconscious. So I palpate his whole body. I don't feel any broken bones. Um, I feel his stomach and, and he's really, he should be pudgy because he looks like he's pudgy, but he's not. He's like stone. I'm like, oh, you know, and I, and I, I find out that, that he had hit the dra he had hit the dashboard. And so he probably has internal injuries and maybe he's bleeding internally is what I think. That's, and I don't have any evidence for that. I just make a supposition based on what I see in front of me. So, but which means I, there's nothing I can do for him. I can't, I can't fix him. And I, and I decide not to, to cover him over to keep him warm, but I can't raise his legs for shock because I don't want any blood rushing down if he has a head injury, yeah. you know, or, or in his, in, in his belly, if he's bleeding to death internally, I don't want to add more blood to that. So I just cover him over, and, and meanwhile, somebody calls for an ambulance. This is pre-cell phone days, and somehow somebody gets uh, uh, some way to get an ambulance on the way. And so I'm kneeling in front of him, not knowing what to do. And um, so I, I put one hand over his forehead, and I put one hand over his belly, and I just began my meditation. I just went into meditation, and which, which for me is uh, a chance. Of, uh, that leads me into a place of stillness. And as soon as I went into meditation, it was like my, my crown opened up and my, my root opened up and an explosion of light came in through me like, like a pulse of like lightning. Boom! It slams through me and it expands inside of me and I become absent to myself. I, I, when the light is inside of me, I'm not present anymore. And it, and it pulses through me into the sky. And, and, and it's like this repeated uh, pulse. Boom, boom, boom. And in between the pulses of light, I realize that there'd been a pulse of light. And then another pulse of light comes. And when the pulse of light comes, I am obliterated. I am not there anymore. There's no more Peter inside this shell. It's just this light itself. And, and it, it just pulses through me and pulses through me and pulses through me. And then suddenly there's an EMT next to me and he's, you know, touching me on the shoulder and I, I'm completely present now to what's going on. I tell him what I think I know. And, um, so we call her him, they put me, they ask, they, they find out that I have some training. They put me on traction. I get the low end job. 
They put me on traction. They collar him. They backboard him. They strap him. I help lift him onto the gurney on the other side of the of the guardrail, and off he goes. And that's it for me. So I go back in the car and we drive away. And I'm telling my buddy uh, what happened when I I I look across the highway and on the steeple of a a stone church or a wood church. I don't. There's a cross, and this cross suddenly leapt across space, flies toward me, strikes me in the chest, and now I, it's like somebody took a knife and shoved it inside my guts and twisted it around. And now I'm suddenly in the front seat of this guy's this guy's car, who's a new friend. He doesn't really know me. He does not know about any, my near-death experience because that stayed a secret for 20 years. Uh, I'm writhing in pain in the front seat of his car, feeling all of this guy's pain. And I and I and I start shouting, oh, my God, it's burning. It's burning. I'm on fire. It's burning. It hurts. It hurts. And I'm screaming. I'm hysterical in this guy's car with pain. And um, and he gets really upset and he shoves me down and shoves me down and it shoves me down. And finally, the pain dissipates and, and he's he's upset at me. He's still a dear friend of mine. I want to let everybody know that he's still one of my best buddies um, because partly because of this event. And when I close my eyes. When I close my eyes to rest, I'm I'm back with the entity, this angel, this uh, this divine being, and I am out of my body, and I'm traveling across the universe, sort of between galaxies, being carried by this angel, this entity, the same one that had carried me before, and I'm traveling at this hyper hypersonic hyper hyper light speed, and uh, I'm headed way far in the distance, extraordinarily far in the distance is the is the divine pinprick of light itself, the the being of, of God. And 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 this event, this thing, every time I close my eyes for the next three days, that's what ha- that's where I am. I'm no I'm not like except for when I go to sleep. Um, but during the day if I close my eyes, I'm flying across space carried by this entity. And uh, it it totally messed with me for three days. I had these these pulses of I would be swept up into this bliss. It kind of came up through my feet and swept through me like like honey in the in reverse direction, pouring up into me. Sweetness, just the sweetness would infill me, and I would I would become empty again of myself, and just felt like I was being, I, instead of being a prayerful person, I was being prayed with an A, not an E. I was being I was infilled with the divine presence that was radiant inside me and it would it came at these super inopportune times it just uh, which i could describe but it lengthens the story but it it the whole thing lasted three days and in the end of it um i'm in this i'm in this class i finally go back to class i can't go to class i'd just been married i'd just been married i come home we we get back to the apartment after the car wreck and um i'm telling my wife about this and Brian and Brian's guy's name, and he's like, and then he's screaming in the front of the car, and he's writhing in pain. And my wife's, my new wife's eyes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like what? Because she's the only person who knows that I died, so she knows I've got this. And I'd had weird things happen around her during our courtship. Our, you know, when she was my fiance. So she's like, what is going on here? Um, and and in the end of it. I'm in this. I'm in this class, uh, Dr. Kelsey's class, and it's a it's New Testament theology, but it's it's mo- it's modern New Testament theology, and and I'm sitting in class, 
and suddenly I feel like my whole sense of self shatters like a like a glass, like a big vase. It's, uh, just my whole sense of Peter shatters into a thousand pieces. My I felt like my ego self shattered and just scattered. I watched it all. All of my sense of self just scattered, and 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 I I remember grabbing the desk, like hanging on, like what is going on to me? Am I going crazy? And then the whole thing reassembled, and I was uh, I was reformed again, and so so I've had these repeated near death after my near death experience. I've had a whole series of mystical experiences that have been extraordinarily intensive, and every single one of them reforms me afterwards. I come back a little different. And so at the I get reformed, and, and Kelsey can see that I'm like not paying attention. And he says, Panagore, uh, what's the answer to this question uh, that I just asked? And I said, well, Professor, I didn't hear it. Could you repeat it for me, please? And he repeats it for me, and I actually know the answer because I'd done the work. So I actually know the answer. I say the answer. I don't even remember what it was. And, and then he goes on with the class. Um, and... And from that moment on, it, that that three-day experience ended. But I was, I was, uh, reformed again. And my my new, every time I have a mystical experience, it it leaves me with a, a like another mark inside my soul, more noetic knowledge, more wisdom, more understanding, more grounded in the world, less floaty, like a balloon above myself. Um, but also more, uh, it can come with, I don't know, more after effects. So it's, it's not, near-death experience isn't this thing, for me anyway, that happens now twice in my life, but uh, on, an, on a particular day, it's this, this ongoing event that I live with every single day of my life that I can never shut off. It always feels to me like, um, and I describe it as the eye of Surin, are you a Tolkien fan? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> JR, all right. It's like the eye of Surin, but but it's not evil. All right, the all-seeing eye. It's the it's the eye that all that never shuts off. So it's always there's always this presence that never ever it just doesn't ever go away. And I tried to run away for a few years. I tried not to have it, but I found that I couldn't leave it, and so I decided instead that I would um, pursue it and spend my life in pursuit of it. And so that's what I've done. I've spent my whole life in pursuit of it and worked whatever jobs I had to work in order to earn a living and raise a family. Wow. <laughs> man. This was an interview, man. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> Well, I'm 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 glad. I I like doing interviews because what I my what I what I really want to do is help people understand that uh, there's more to themselves than they think, and that the divine is real. Call it by any name you want to, uh, because there's it's ineffable. There's uns, it's unspeakable. Mm -hmm. There's no language on the other side. There's no religion on the other side. There's no gender. On the, I had no gender. The divine had no gender. There's, it's, it's so far beyond conception that uh, the best and closest we can come to, I can come to talk about it, is is love, and that that love is this, 
experience that human beings have, whether you're agnostic, atheist, or a believer, it doesn't really matter. You love your family, you love your children, you love your friends. Um, love is this the treasure of life. It's the it's the one thing that I got to carry with me that was of of beauty. And um, my one of the reasons why I like doing interviews is because I want to be able to, if I can, in some small way, uh, intellectually impact an individual's spiritual life. But more particularly, if I'm capable or able to, or or something happens that they have a small experience of the divine while they're watching the video, while they're present, while this is running live, or or that that they have that they feel the divine presence. Because once a person feels the divine presence, then they begin to to the scales begin to fall from their eyes, and they begin to see the reality. Of that's inside them and all around them if only they pursue it and then they really don't need anyone to help them they mm. just need to see inside themselves and that's why i like doing interviews and i want to thank you gary for having me here because yeah. you know i'm my job is to reach as many people in my lifetime as i can awesome uh, this is great um before we wrap it up where can my listeners find you um to get more information to get your book watch the movies that are in shows, the interviews, the documentaries, and all the other things that you're up to. Uh, well, thanks for asking. I'm at peterpanagor.love, and I, do, I, do, I run a, a global counseling service for spirituality, pastoral care, and mysticism and near-death experience. I help people uh, sort through their mystical experiences. Primarily, that's what I do on a global scale. And um, Heaven is Beautiful, I got a couple of books out. Uh, they're all... At all the major stores, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and on Audible and um, what else do I do? Uh, I, I, lots of videos on YouTube. There's a you Google me on YouTube. There's pages and pages of, mm -hmm. of, of, of interviews that I've done in lots of different places, uh, large and small, obscure and uh, well known. And uh, on YouTube, there's this documentary that just came out that was running on Amazon Prime. It might still be running on Amazon Prime. It's not in my area anymore. I just was looking at it yesterday. You know, how, I don't know if you know that they do that. They're like, you can't yeah, get it now in your place. So where I live is like, you can't get this now. Um, but it's on YouTube. And um, I, got, I, I don't know, probably 2 million views altogether on YouTube if you t go across all the all the platforms I've been I've been working on. Um, my goal my goal is is not me. I know that I worked in TV for 15 years and I know that I was the brand of the of the of the show. Like uh, my face was the brand, but it was never about it was very difficult for me to like, grasp that idea. But it, it's not about me. It's always about the divine light and the divine light inside of you. Because I know, and that mosquito also has gone into his next karmic <laughs> incarnation. Um, I know that I'm not from here any more than that mosquito is from here. Um, and so, I want to help people find. I want to help people find the divine inside them. And I teach. I teach primarily. I run. Oh, I should tell you. I run this thing called Not Church on Sunday morning. So everybody should know this. I w I'm an ordained uh, United Church of Christ Reverend officially um we'll see how long that lasts now that i've been running not church because not church is no dogma no doctrine no bullshit uh, just mysticism and i my goal is uh, uh, is to bring in my wide reading uh, I've, I've globally read in mysticism the the sutras pantajali sutras the 
Upanishads, the Vedas. I've read over my lifetime. I've spent as a scholar. So I've, I've been as a writer uh, studying all this. I bring this into my work on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. But mostly, not church is a deconstruction of Christianity and and Western. Um, religion uh, to find the light inside the words of Jesus, because I I see Jesus as a, uh, a mystic. He sounds like a near death experiencer for me. I went to Catholic high school. I I, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. You know, and, and I also like. Um, you know, one of the purposes of my podcast is to get people, or I try to ask people, tell people, or you know, push them in a direction to experiment. Experiment with spirituality. Experience it for yourself. Try all kinds of different things. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's Christian or Muslim or yep. Buddhist, Taoist. Yep. It doesn't matter. Go out and try as many possible things as you can, different forms of meditation, whatever, and, and, and have your own experience because there's nothing more profound than having your own experience. You can listen to other people Mm -hmm. But it's not like having your own because you can't put it, like you say, it cannot be put into words. It, it's beyond our understanding. It can only be experienced. Yep. And it's subjective. And because it's subjective, I can't tell it to you. Right. I can I can point you toward it and tell you what I know and maybe maybe, uh, you know, channel a little bit towards you. But but you have to have your own experience. And the thing about every human being, you're all built for it. Every human being is a natural receptor for the divine because you are an incarnated soul anyway, even if you don't know it. That's you know, as science is beginning and, and science is beginning to show in the consciousness studies uh, that consciousness, the aware study too, I'm going to point at that one with Dr. Samparnia. Um, he, at the end of his, his study, he said that consciousness survives death for a period of time. And, and that is the beginning of when you understand that your consciousness is not part of your body, when you have your own experience, that's the beginning of your spiritual life, for mm -hmm. real. When you have that kind of touch, there ain't no going back. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You and I are on the same page. <laughs> I'm into that. Uh, there is another mosquito. Oh, my gosh, there's going to... Yeah. So I live, I live, I, why are there so many mosquitoes where I am? Cause I live in the end of a peninsula, um, on the end of a, of a neck of land. I thought you were in Boston. Oh, uh, no, I'm from, I'm with Boston, go Sox. But no, I live in, I live along the coast of Maine. I live on a, one of the fingers that stick out into the, to the Gulf of Maine. It's and still it's cold. The, oh, it's, we were the coolest place in the Northeast today. Uh, uh, not maybe my house, but pretty darn close to it. It was 95 from probably northern Maine to Washington, D.C. And But where I was, where I live, it was probably only 80. Because wow. um, we stick out in the ocean. We stick mm. out, and it does, it's cold here most of the year. Wow. There's about but 100 here today. Where, where are you? In Alabama. Oh, oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. We don't even own an air conditioner. <laughs> we, none of my neighbors own air conditioners we own generators for when the power yeah. goes out in the winter but we don't own air conditioners because because we the ocean wow. um, see i like the heat i couldn't i'm originally from new jersey and one of the things i do not miss is the winter yeah well i i the older i get the less i i'm a skier so even though i'm a frostbite you know person um i i, I like winter sports but 
I'm I'm half Greek. And you know, I'm I'm genetically programmed to like the hot weather and I do like the hot weather. I slow down, I, I don't have to hurry anywhere, I, I get dark, um, you know, it's my I do miss it. But um I moved to Maine um for work, but also because I needed to be immersed in nature. Um because uh, I needed healing from my near-death experience, and nature, the spirit leaks through nature. I live in a very wild place. Yeah. Um, I got uh, wildlife all around me all the time, and it's healing for me. Now my wife wants to go back to the city, so maybe maybe oh. there's a point at which we're going to go back to the city again. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's I, a, I left New Jersey to live in the country, and my next move is probably going to be further into the country. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I sympathize strongly. Absolutely. Um, All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. Um, I will post the links to your website on in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check you out, buy your book, and follow you on YouTube, and keep their eyes open for that movie. It'll be coming. It'll be it'll probably be called Heaven Is. Um, that's kind of the work and title. Cool. And, and uh, uh, you can talk to me too. You can contact me at peterpanagor.love if you want to uh, book appointment. If you want to, if you have a mystical experience, a spiritual experience that you don't know, you can't talk to anybody else about because you they'll call you a kook. I won't. Or you could come on my podcast and use a fake name. Oh, you could do that. And, can you put a black <laughs> bar across their eyes? I don't really use the video that often, so I just give them a fake name. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Oh, so we, so we, this, this isn't video. That's great. All right. So nobody will see me catching and killing the mosquitoes. No, no, you're off the hook. Uh, totally. Nobody well, knows that I did that. Although you sent like four <laughs> mosquitoes to the light. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. And they went without my blood. I'm just, I, I'll, I'll say that too. <laughs> All right. I'll hang on one second and I'm just going to play the outro. All right. Peace, everybody. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.